Cabin crew prepare for departure. Welcome everyone, I'm Caitlin, your team leader. Joining me in the cabin is Tiana and Marty. sitting in the bush block out the back of my mother-in-law's shack in St Helens, about two hours drive from Launceston in Tasmania. And I have come out here to attempt to answer a question that was asked uh, by a listener a couple of months ago now. It's, it's a gorgeous day, it's still, it's warm, I've had an amazing five hours sleep and I've been, I think I left the house at six to go and find coffee and I found coffee. I was, I was punished for my efforts. I, I do love coming to Tassie, but I also feel like when I get here, when we land, I'm always a bit like, I'm on the island now. <laughs> you know, I think there's, <laughs> it's, uh, I've been told this is a Sagittarian trait, not that I put any stock at all in astrology, but um, the one foot out the door thing is very much part of my personality. So I think something in, something in me always wants to be able to get in the car and just drive. And when you get to Tassie, you, you are in a very different space where you can get in a car and drive, but you're going to hit water like pretty quick couple of hours in any direction you are going to come to Bass Strait or similar. Uh, yeah so I feel not where I belong I suppose. I want to just look at a poem today because I think it's going to help me answer this question and I also I've been hearing from a few people that they would love it They'd love to hear more episodes where I just look at, look at one poem and try to do like a close reading. I will attempt that with this poem, but as you'll see, it's a tough one. It's tough to, I actually don't know if there's going to be anything in this poem at all um, to think about in any serious way, but we'll, we'll give it a red hot go. So, I had an email uh, about mid-September from listener Sophie. Sophie is Australian. She, was, she said that she was born in Melbourne, but she now lives in Norway and is rediscovering Australian poetry through this podcast, which is pretty nice, pretty special. Very happy to have you listening, Sophie, and have you um, be guided through my, like, could we call it a potted history? I, don't, I think that would be generous. Um, yeah, my extremely factually questionable history of Australian poetry. And this is going to be one of those. So I'm expecting emails. I'm expecting corrections. I, kn I know you're coming for me, guys. I, I'm ready. I'm going to get things wrong. <laughs> but Sophie from Norway wrote to say uh, a bunch of lovely things, but one of the things that she included in this email was a question. She said, I just listened to your episode 200, and I wondered if you have changed your mind on whether or not you stand within a tradition. I don't know tip from tail when it comes to Australian literature. I tried to order the monkey's mask, but it is out of print. 
and it's only through your show that I even became aware that there was any sort of tradition. And then she ends by saying, that seems like tradition to me. First off, I want to say, um, I was like horrified when you, when you suggested that the monkey's mask is out of print and then I looked it up and I, as far as I can see, it is very much in print. Uh, but if you can't find it, Sophie, if you can't get your hands on a copy, then I'll send you one. No worries. Uh, I can probably get one today when we go to the local secondhand bookshop, which is obviously on my agenda. We are here for my mother-in-law's 70th birthday and today is her birthday. But because I'm incredibly selfish, what I'm going to do is try to manipulate things so that we get to go to the bookshop. Because um, this is where I found, this is the place where I found James McCauley's versification book, the title of which is escaping me right now. God, that's terrible. Anyway, the book that Macaulay wrote that I used to try to understand versification and obviously have not fully retained yet, um, I found it down here, so I'm, I'm excited. I feel like there's going to be some treasure out there for me. So I will be going to the bookshop at some point. Um, but yeah, as I say, Sophie, if you can't find Monkey's Mask, let me know. Looking it up and looking up where sells it, I came across a link to this amazing sounding bookshop in Bondi called Gertrude and Alice. Gertrude and Alice is a bookshop and a coffee shop and as such it opens at 6.30 in the morning. I really could have used a bookshop at 6.30 this morning. <laughs> the birds woke me up at 5 and by 6.30 I was ready to go. <laughs> Yeah, Gertrude and Alice looks beautiful, and yeah, they've got the monkey's mask there. But to your question, Sophie, have I changed my mind on whether or not I stand within a tradition? So episode 200, I guess, is going back about a year, and I can't... Uh, I was lazy and didn't listen back. Well, I mean, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't love listening back to my older episodes, um, which is probably not a great thing to admit to you, but... Yeah, I can't really remember what my argument was there. I guess probably what I said was, I don't feel like I'm part of any tradition and so don't feel like I have to create any kind of legacy. Yeah, I, I imagine at that point, a year ago, I would have been pretty skeptical about the idea of maybe even an Australian tradition in general as a whole. And also and, and definitely my place within that tradition I would have just sort of shrugged but I do feel a little different now a little bit different there's still a lot of skepticism and a lot of questions that I feel like have not been adequately answered I think the main thing that changed things for me was reading that Harwood biography my tongue is my own because up until I read that, I kind of felt like Australian poetry that I cared about started with so-called Generation of 68. But then I read that book and I thought, that's, there's, there's more there that I can feel a kinship with. And Harwood revealed herself to me as, yeah, somebody, somebody that I feel like I really understand on a lot of different levels. And being in Tassie, I'm thinking of her. This is her land of exile, the place she never managed to get away from, the place she was stuck in for her whole life, pretty much, from the time she was married. So, 
coming to understand her life and how it related to the lives of people like Macaulay and then getting to know through her story people like Vincent Buckley and others of that generation I felt a little bit more of the tradition quote unquote open up to me but I mean I think the thing that I just struggle with is that like so much of the tradition just sucks like the Australian poetry tradition from settlement onwards uh, particularly early early settler poetry is just it's cringe it's just very very hard to get excited about and to feel like to feel proud of it's hard to feel proud about I mean fuck guys it's not it's not a good time uh, right now like it's I know you don't come to this show for politics but like just so you know uh, it's fucked up in a way that's um, pretty pretty undeniable at this moment I was thinking about how to like properly answer this question and maybe try to explain where that resistance comes from and I decided to go to this poem this poem that has has just a, a huge number of problems with it <laughs> but which has persisted for um, over a hundred years nope not because it's good I don't think but it's just one of those things it's it's just it's stuck around and so I'm kind of offering this to you Sophie is like a a suggestion of like where the tradition that that I'm a part of starts out all right enough <laughs> enough excuse making uh, okay so I'm gonna read this poem by a guy called Charles Harper Charles Harper was Australia's first colonial poet asterisk we'll come back to that at the end uh, he is known as Australia's first colonial poet and his most famous poem is the poem I'm going to read to you now not all at once because you will switch off the show I'm gonna read it probably a stanza at a time it's called a midsummer noon in the Australian forest I can I can hear every one who knows this poem like I might as well be reading the man from snowy river Everyone who knows this poem is like groaning and rolling their eyes, but I'm going to do it because maybe there's something here. Let's, let's keep an open mind. A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest. First stanza. Not a sound disturbs the air. There is quiet everywhere. Over plains and over woods, what a mighty stillness broods. All the birds and insects keep where the coolest shadows sleep. Even the busy ants are found resting in their pebbled mound. Even the locust clingeth now, silent to the barky bough. Over hills and over plains, quiet, vast and slumbrous, reigns. Okay, so that's the first answer. Uh, if I have read my Macaulay correctly, which I probably haven't, I would say that that is um, 
That is a stanza of, well, this whole poem is uh, iambic tetrameter, heroic couplets. That's my, <laughs> that's my um, attempt to talk about the, the structural choice there. Um, and yeah, this is written by Charles Harper, who was, I found out a lot about him as I was researching for this episode. Charles Harper, born 1813, died 1868, and he published this poem in 1851 in the 27th of May edition of the colonial newspaper, The Empire. Just to give you a sense of what things were like around that time, 1850, 1851. Shit, something just landed right near me and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what was that? <laughs> Am I about to get bitten by something large? <laughs> okay, so flavor of the time, the 18, early 1850s. Um, in 1850, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poems was published and that includes the famous Sonnet 43, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. Emily Dickinson is not quite writing yet, but she's about to start. Whitman is about to start writing Leaves of Grass. There's going to be flies all through this episode. Um, and yeah, where I am now, Tasmania, was at that time known as Van Diemen's Land, and convicts were still being transported here. Harper was apparently against transportation. I don't really know what that means in terms of his politics, whether that means he didn't want more criminals from England to come here or whether he was, you know, against um, transportation as a form of punishment. Like, I'm not sure how self-interested that stance was, but just so you know, he was against transportation. His family was supported by Governor Lachlan Macquarie. So he was well taken care of, living in Sydney. But when he was about 15, his father lost all his land and had to live on a pension of 50 pounds a year. The family scattered and Charles and his eldest brother ended up going to the Hunter River for a while. Then he came back to Sydney. He had a bunch of random jobs. He's sounding very much like a poet. Uh, random jobs like letter sorting, no regular job for about 10 years. He was a sheep farmer. Uh, then he was appointed assistant gold commissioner on the southern gold fields. This is just like a standard um, early colonial Australia life, I suppose. But throughout all that, he was a prolific poet. He wrote lots and lots of poems. And he, like Whitman, he was, as the Charles Harper Critical Archive describes him, an inveterate reviser. So this poem that I'm looking at was revised so many times that there's not even agreement on the title. It's, some, it's also been anthologized as Midsummer Noon in the Bush, not A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest. But basically, in this first stanza, he's just saying over and over again, geez, it's quiet. It's nice and quiet out here. Okay, let's do the next next stanza at least. Only there's a drowsy humming from yon warm lagoon, slow coming. Tis the dragon hornet, see? All bedaubed, resplendently, yellow on a tawny ground. Each rich spot, nor square, nor round, rudely heart-shaped as it were, 
the blurred and hasty impress there. I don't even know, like this language is so tortured, I can barely follow what's going on. Okay, so there's, there's humming, there's a hornet, I would be concerned at that point, um, but apparently it's quite pretty. Oh fuck, is someone coming? I'm actually not supposed to be here. This is not, this is not part of my mother-in-law's property where I am right now. So if somebody comes through, I am going to be in trouble. Um, yeah, so he's describing a hornet in that stanza. It's pretty, rudely heart-shaped. I don't understand what the blurred and hasty impress there. But the next stanza maybe continues that thought. The blurred and hasty impress there of a vermeil-crusted seal dusted over with golden meal. I, I don't know. I don't even know what he's talking about. Um, something to do with the hornet. There's a hornet. We can summarize that bit as saying. Only there's a droning where yon bright beetle shines in air, tracks it in its gleaming flight with a, with a slanting beam of light rising in the sunshine higher till its shards flame out like fire. That makes sense to me. Then the next bit is like, there's a Christmas beetle. So pretty. So, so far we have, it's nice and quiet. There's a hornet and a Christmas beetle. Cool, okay. As you can tell, I am not enthusiastic about the language or the rhyme or the meter or really like what this poem is doing so far, which is basically just describing a landscape, <laughs> which is what so much of Australian poetry did, has done, and in many cases continues to do without really questioning what that landscape is. But yeah, I am going to this poem, not only because Harper was supposedly Australia's first colonial poet, but because this poem in particular, A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Bush, no, A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest, <laughs> it's clearly, it's clearly like, I'm so resistant to it, I can't even be bothered to remember the title. Um, yeah, it's, it is, I swear, I feel like somebody is about to walk down this track and discover me recording on a zoom in the middle of the bush um, it has persisted for such a long time since its publication so it was published as I said in 1851 and Harper gained enough of a reputation in his lifetime that his work lived on after him and this was one of the poems that has really rusted on to the Australian poetic tradition. Between 1900 and 2016, it was anthologized 40 times at least. That's according to the count by, again, the Charles Harper Critical Archive. So basically what that means is um, every, a little under every three years from 1900 through to 2016, a new anthology comes out with this poem in it. A little under every three years this poem gets republished as like representative of a certain time and flavor of Australian poetry. I just want to read you some of the titles of some of these anthologies because I think that will also give you a sense of what I'm talking about here. From 2004, Our Country, 
classic Australian poetry, from the colonial ballads to Patterson and Lawson. Uh, from 1988, Australian Poetry, Tradition and Change. From 1962, The Call of the Gums, an anthology of Australian verse. And from 2012, Sense, Shape, Symbol, an investigation of Australian poetry. I want to talk about that one a bit um, too in a moment. But yeah, this poem, if you pick up any anthology, I have, I'm reading here from my Penguin Book of Australian Verse, uh, edited by Harry Hesterline. You're probably going to find this poem by Harper. It's in the Kinsella Anthology, which is the other main one that I go to. That's where I first read it. Uh, again, if we end up going to the bookshop later, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to find this poem. I really am sorry about the flies. I hope they're not making this unbearable to listen to. Okay, let's keep going. We are nearly, we're nearly at the end. You'll be very happy to know. Okay, so we had the, the quiet, the hornet, the Christmas beetle. Every other thing is still. Save the ever wakeful rill, whose cool murmur only throws cooler comfort round repose, or some ripple in the sea of leafy boughs, where lazily tired summer in her bower, turning with the noontide hour, heaves a slumberous breath ere she once more sleeps peacefully. So just, just so you know, um, what a rill is. I looked that up. It's kind of a, it's like the beginnings of a stream. It's like the, the spot in the earth where water is starting to collect and erode the ground. It's not quite at the point where you could call it a stream or a brook, but it's getting there. That's a rill. So the other thing that he notices in this landscape is, oh, there's some, there's some water running. That sounds nice. And he can hear the trees shifting in the wind and so that's that's also lovely okay and the last stanza this is where if the poem has a turn this is its turn oh tis easeful here to lie hidden from noon's scorching eye in this grassy cool recess musing thus of quietness so to summarize it's quiet there's a hornet, there's a Christmas beetle. I can hear some water and some leaves. Jesus, nice. <laughs> That's basically what the poem is. It's bloody lovely. It's bloody lovely, it's so quiet. It's just, it's, it's so pretty. It is so pretty, it is such a pretty vision of the Australian bush and obviously that's one of the reasons why it's been anthologized so much. This is something that you can you can find all throughout Australian poetry um, for many decades and and now too. Looking at the landscape and and talking about how lovely it is. And it's, you know, it's not just like Australian poets aren't the only people that do that. Obviously, all poets do that. Um, why am I being so sceptical and dismissive of this poem that really its only offence is that 
it's pretty and maybe its language is a little dated um, to my ear. Well, maybe I feel a bit implicated in the poem because this is one of these poems that, you know, when I started writing, this is basically what I would write. It would be like something, something nature, something, something place, me, me in relation to that. And an unconscious, unthinking description of a place and then placing myself within that landscape and saying, and here I am. I think though that the, the other reason, one other reason at least, that, that this poem annoys me is because it makes the bush pretty when, like the bush is pretty, like where I'm sitting is, it's gorgeous and peaceful. But it's also, there's a lot more to it than that. One thing is that it's scary. <laughs> it's scary out here. Uh, I am a, a city mouse and I don't know first aid and I'm out here all alone and I didn't tell anyone where I was going. <laughs> so like if anything happens to me, like if I come across a, a snake or something, I get bit and I get bitten or if I fall and, and twist my ankle or whatever, like it's, uh, it's going to get very hairy very quickly. I think the thing about the bush when I'm out in it, and I grew up in Canberra, so I spent a lot of time as a kid, like running around making cubby houses and stuff out in the bush without parental supervision. So I'm not like totally unfamiliar with it, but I have a, a deep appreciation for the fact that the bush does not give a fuck about me. <laughs> like this landscape does not care um, to take care of me or make things pretty for me and maybe in this poem you know Charles Harper lying uh, in his grassy cool recess musing of quietness I sort of want to shake him and be like dude you want to be careful I don't know that's yeah we were as we were driving out here last night I was asking Tom about how he would define Australian gothic which is a a thing that I've been trying to come to grips with over the last couple of months. I've been thinking a lot about Acute Misfortune, the book and the film. And yeah, I, I want to, I want to make an episode about what Australian Gothic is, but I don't feel like I fully understand it myself. And one of the things that Tom said, which kind of blew my mind and made it make a lot more sense to me is that the thing about Australian Gothic is it is the flip side of the larrikin, um, the Shilby Wright, the nothing's ever serious, everything's a joke, like no worries. It's, it's the moment when the no worries falls away and all of a sudden things are actually quite dangerous. That, that made a lot of sense to me. You know, there is something sinister about being told like no 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 don't don't worry about that um she'll be right like that sort of there's a false reassurance or something and really what it's saying is like yes you should worry about that <laughs> there is a concern there but we're not going to pay attention to it the way I sort of my shorthand for it in my head is the moment in Priscilla 
when they step off the bus, they realize that they're lost. And Terence Stamp says, oh, Felicia, where the fuck are we? I mean, I just think that line's hilarious, but it's also, it's terrifying in that moment. That was a very pretty bird. It's terrifying because they, they are fucked. They don't have enough petrol or water or supplies. They're like, all they've got is just oceans of drag and no idea where they're going. When I was younger, I used to watch that film a lot and that moment always like, it always freaked me out. Oh, Felicia, where the fuck are we? I mentioned before this book, Sense, Shape, Symbol, An Investigation of Australian Poetry, uh, that was put out in 2012 and included this Harper poem. I want to draw attention to this book because 2012 is not that long ago. And Sense, Shape and Symbol is a textbook. It's for year eight to 11 students. This is its little blurb. Sense, Shape and Symbol is an investigation of Australian poetry. It explores the ways in which poets succeed or fail in their attempts to bring their experience to life. Their primary raw materials are the five senses, sight, sound, smell, taste and touch, the means by which we all experience our world. Poets also like to experiment with the shape of their writing, starting with the qualities of vowels and consonants, of syllables and of rhyme, meter and rhythm. Working poets, as opposed to the non-working kind, working poets make particular use of metaphor, of the connections that they suggest between normally unlike things to express their response to their subject. The collection explores the work of five poets who have played an important, influential part in the development of Australian poetry. Judith Wright, Ujuru Nunakul, David Maloof, Les Murray, and Mark O'Connor. So that was interesting. I worry that Judith Wright and Les Murray are going to bore the shit out of those students. Like, I just worry that, you know, first of all, they're, if you're taking poetry in year eight at 14 and you're being given this book, like, you're in a class where you didn't get to choose that that was what you were studying. You didn't get to decide that you wanted to study poetry. And then if you're sitting there reading Woman to Man by Judith Wright, or the Broadbean Sermon by Liz Murray, you're, I don't know, you're just, you're going to be bored and you're going to feel lost. And if you spend any time with this Charles Harper poem, I don't know, I, I suspect you might conclude that poetry was quite pointless. I was thinking about that and I was like, all right, so, so what would I put in my anthology for year eight to 11 students? And I think I would put I would keep Nunicle's poems and I would try to include the sick bag poems. This is something that uh, I only learned about from the wonderful Brendan Casey when I took his class. But yeah, Udguru Nunicle was um, caught in a hijack incident, <laughs> believe it or not, and uh, was stuck on a plane with hijackers for a number of hours and during that time, um, spoke to them and tried to negotiate with them. And when she wasn't doing that, she wrote a bunch of poems on her aeroplane sick bags. 
I would tell a 14 year old about that. I think they'd think it was pretty fucking cool. I would get them to read Forbes. I would get them to read um, Rose Celebi because I think at 14, 15, 16, you would get that. You would understand like what it is like to feel obsessed with somebody called Julie or similar. And I think it would be fun to talk about, you know, starting a poem with Julie breathing like a t-shirt after rain. That's, that's bizarre. And I think we could have a fun conversation about that. I would, I would include Evelyn Araluen's Acknowledgement of Country from Drop Bear. I don't know what the rules are around introducing the word cunt into a, um, into a classroom, but I would just do it anyway because I think you would get people's attention, you'd get those kids' attention, and you could have a really interesting discussion because that poem asks a bunch of questions and, and doesn't give the answers. But yeah, I wouldn't talk about Harper because the fact is he's not, he's not even Australia's first poet. As Justin Clemens and Thomas Ford have outlined in their book, the real first colonial poet is Baron Field. And we're not even sure whether he was, whether his work is all a joke, but we know that he was writing it in order to get a certain outcome, a certain legal outcome, that legal outcome being the fiction that we know as Terra Nullius. So that's an interesting discussion to have in a classroom. Yeah. There's a lot of detail there that might be a little bit difficult to get across to your year eights, but your year 11s will follow it. And I think that that could work. Anyway, so <laughs> to sum up, Sophie, this, this is the tradition that I feel I, I have to contend with, but I spend a lot of time avoiding and not thinking about and um, preferring to think about the American tradition uh, maybe that's not a particularly flattering way to be. Maybe that's not, that's not right of me to think about Australian poetry in this way. But whether it's right or wrong, um, the, the stultifying nature of this kind of poetry, the way that it prettifies things that really, that, that aren't just pretty, the way that it smooths over things that really can't be smoothed over, um, it's what makes me so appreciative of the so-called 68ers. Like when they happen, that's when I feel like, okay, now I'm in. Now I'm with you guys. I understand what we're doing. You know, it's why Ken and Pam are so important to me. And, you know, when I walked into that launch of, of Ken's the other week, I was just, I was, I was late because it started on time, scandalously. But yeah, I stood at the back of the room and I just, I looked at the front and I'm like, that's Ken Bolton. <laughs> and, and I feel the same way about Pam and Forbes and all the rest of them. Like they made a space where I feel like I can stand and mill about a bit. Yeah, dealing with the tradition. It's uncomfortable. I find it really uncomfortable. Um, others probably don't feel that way but I, my stomach is in knots right now. Like talking about Harper, um, 
talking about colonial Australia, I, yeah. I hate it. I also understand that it is not useful to just deny it. Um, and I don't know that I found anything really redeemable about that poem. I think the only thing that I like about it really is the description of the Christmas beetle. Because I love Christmas beetles. Maybe just to end, I will read you two things. I'm going to read you a little bit from Harry Hesterling's introduction to this Penguin Book of Australian Verse, and then I'm going to quote Justin. So Harry Hesterling says this, that the tradition of deliberate poetry, deliberate poetry, that the, tra that the tradition of deliberate poetry starts in Australia with Charles Harper, there can be no doubt. The most useful perspective on Harper's verse and the imaginative history he initiated, however, is much more open to question. The conventional way of judging our 19th century poets, treating them as cameras pointed at a landscape, clearly has its uses. Yet those uses are chiefly concerned with the outer trappings of poetry. And then he talks specifically about Midsummer Noon. The source of a modern Australian phenomenon may well be found in A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest. Too often thought of as a mildly successful program piece, Midsummer Noon reveals its true inwardness only in its concluding lines. Oh, tis easeful here to lie, hidden from noon's scorching eye, in this grassy cool recess, musing thus of quietness. Here, the whole centre of the poem's gravity is shifted, away from nature, which is observed, to the consciousness which is doing the observing. I mean, yeah, I, I see what he means. Um, that is true. At the end of the poem, we shift to the perspective of a thinker in a landscape. But I don't know. I mean, that to me seems like nowhere near enough to base anything on. <laughs> like, sure, okay, but and then what? I did want to quote this, um, this line of Justin's just to end because uh, it's funny. So Justin did a Q&A with his co-author Thomas Ford uh, about the book Barrenfield in New South Wales, The Poetics of Terra Nullius. And in that interview, Justin says, Hegel says that what we learn from history is that nothing is learned from history and that therefore history is nothing but an endless sequence of unknowing repetitions of catastrophes. That is a typical Justin Clemens line. <laughs> nothing is learned, everything is a catastrophe, and it just keeps happening over and over again. Uh, yeah, I think if I'm part of a tradition, that's, that's a better summation of that tradition. All right, I got to go back to the house because they're going to send out a search party. It is beautiful out here though.